Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Trainer Talks and Tales. You are joined by Tess and Daisy. Hey Daisy, how are you? Hi Tess, I'm good, thank you. We have such a good episode coming up today, but before we get into it, I actually just wanted to quickly touch on something that we're doing on our social media, which is a new segment that we've decided to call Meet an Animal Specialist. I guess it kind of came from the fact that we just want to be able to give more opportunities to highlight some really amazing people in the industry from around the world. So keep your eyes out for those on our socials as they will be coming through every sort of few weeks. How's your week though, Tess? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, Busy as always at this time of year. Um, Don't have much to add. Uh, I've just put up my Christmas tree, so I'm in the Christmas spirit. So basically just get into the Christmas spirit, everyone, because Daisy and I are already there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I also spend my weekend doing lots of Christmas festivities, so I think we're both equally very Christmas excited. I may be recording this in a Christmas outfit too, so that's the level I'm at. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's appropriate for us to post a photo of Tess and what she's wearing, but I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> hey, don't make it sound too bad. Too now, bullies. speaking of Christmas Tess, so my quick recommendation this week is actually because I went to Woolies. So sorry if you're not in Australia, but this is an Australian recommendation. So I went to the grocery store Woolies the other day and their reusable paper bags, they have changed to be sort of Christmas themed, but they've actually designed them so that you can cut away the handles and then use the bags as wrapping paper, which I think is so cool. And they also are selling glitter and packaging free wrapping paper too, which is really fun because I feel like every year, you know, I feel like you post, a couple of us always post about how we can try and make Christmas a little bit more sustainable and more recyclable and being able to try and find wrapping paper that doesn't have glitter means that it's still recyclable. So I think it's so progressive and so exciting to see big supermarkets like Woolies that are now selling glitter-free and packaging-free on purpose, which is so cool. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, I, um, I'm so, like, scroogey that I take back everyone's tags. So if it's, like, to mum from Tess, I take it back and I reuse it every year. So, and it's just a nice little pile of cupboards. So stuff like that, you know, be sustainable this Christmas if you can. No, great recommendation, Daisy. Okay, well, a little less Christmas chat. Let's get into this episode. Uh, Now, for this episode, we were really lucky to be joined by Dr. Isabella Clegg, who is the founder of Animal Welfare Expertise. Now, after years of study, she explains why she created AW, the impact of it on zoos and aquariums, and what positive welfare might look like. So, let's go. Let's do it. Isabella, thank you so much for joining Tess and I today on Trainer Talks and Tales. We are both so excited to have this conversation. Um, But before we start any episode, we'd love to start with our fast five. So are you happy if we roll straight into that? Yeah, of course. Okay, number one, favorite animal? I'm going to say dolphin. (laughs) Birds or reptiles? Ooh, birds. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. And favorite country? 
Oh, um, I don't know why it came to my head, but Italy, even though, yeah, I love Italy. <laughs> it's probably because he just said pasta. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be. <laughs> I, like, I don't I don't even like, I mean, I like Italy, but yeah, it must be. Love it. Well okay. done. And quick responses too. Honestly, I think that pizza or pasta one is the hardest one we have. <laughs> really? No, always pasta, yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you again so much for joining us today. You are the founder of Animal Welfare Expertise, and we can't wait to get into that, learn a little bit more about it. But first, we'd love to uh, for you to share where your career all started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I guess it started probably like a lot of people listening that was really interested in animals as um, a young kid, didn't I thought the only sort of um, option to go was to be a vet, which would be a great career for, for loads of people and I sort of got all the way to I, I got into vet school and then at the last minute I don't even know why but decided no I want to take a year out and go traveling and um I don't know see if I, I might do something different which was looking back I don't know why why I decided to do that but in that year out I um yeah did some awesome traveling and did some like conservation projects with marine animals which I think is where my like interest in marine animals came from and then I ended up going to uni to study animal behavior and welfare so slightly different to vet studies and um, I was just lucky enough to be at the University of Bristol at the time when they were you know sort of the, the sort of hot spot in the world for studying animal welfare so there were some really inspirational people there um, and I then after that did a master's in marine mammal science in the University of Miami so had another amazing adventure over in the States another great um uh for like a university and group of people to inspire me um and then I did a PhD in assessing dolphin welfare so I kind of for the PhD took the undergrad and the master's put them together a little bit and applied them as yeah to develop this welfare assessment which hadn't been done before for for bottlenose dolphins and then yeah I guess the the next bit is well, what usually happens after a PhD is do you want to stay in research or do you want to be do something else more applied um and I think I knew I wanted to do more applied work I loved that I was missing that animal contact um yeah doing too much research I think but there weren't any, any jobs in you know dolphin welfare assessment or even zoo welfare assessment so that's why I decided to try the consultancy and see if that would work and that was yeah six years ago so it's um it's been really good that's so cool. And did you notice any difference between the study that you did in the UK compared to the US? Like we often talk about the different ways of getting into the industry and we've spoken to some people from America, some people from Australia, the UK, and everyone says there's kind of different pathways depending on the country yeah. that you're in. Mm, definitely. And then uh, the third one, in my PhD was in France, so I have that comparison as well. So, yeah, between, between the US, like, and it was a master's, so it was grad school. So I think it was, everyone took it, which was really nice, took it super, super seriously, I think, because probably because it costs more, it's, it's everyone's really like keen to be there, which was awesome. Um, you have that whole like campus feel of, of the American university. So I think, I guess the life around the course in, in the US, I really, really liked and preferred. The interesting thing in terms of the actual um, stuff we were learning is that animal welfare wasn't so big on the agenda in the US as it was in the UK so I came over with 
um, you know, these ideas of doing dolphin. I was already thinking about doing dolphin welfare assessments and I did that for my master's thesis. But when I proposed it, um, you know, my US supervisors thought I was basically an animal rights activist and was like, mm-hmm. what you want to do? What what kind of welfare assessment? Like, you know, all of this stuff. So that was quite um, interesting to see the difference between how they were. And then France was then another kettle of fish. It was um, it was a really cool program because it's a PhD that is kind of in industry. So I was in a dolphinarium who were kind of also sponsoring me in collaboration with the government and with the university. So I spent le- a bit less time at university than other PhDs, but um, got like kind of you know, real world job experience. Like I had to be there nine till five every day, even though my whole job was doing the PhD. So it was, I really liked that balance again for someone who likes the more applied stuff um, and less less being in the lab. Um, So yeah, there was definitely a few differences. Yeah, well, and what an amazing opportunity to be able to gain that experience from numerous different countries. Now, Mm. obviously with animal welfare expertise, we are so interested to hear a lot more about it. So are you able to chat about the company your mission statement and what what you offer yeah of course um so our mission uh, very simply is to enhance animal welfare but our angle is using the latest scientific techniques science um and that mostly comes in the form of how you assess welfare um and measure the different welfare indicators for that species um so we have done lots of different work with we, we work from like with zoos or aquariums or we go in and collect welfare data and then feed it back to the institution and and tell them okay this is what we found this is our recommendations um which is really rewarding and I, again with the practical element I love doing that side of it because you get to be on the ground and and work with the team there um but then we've also moved on to using that kind of principle not collecting that primary data but using that principle to advise either governments or conservation projects or anyone who's interested in having animal welfare standards um, because I guess that to, to, to assess the welfare of, of the facil- uh, facility you need to be assessing it against something like what's your criteria you know are you looking for you know space above this amount so the step up from that is setting those standards for different companies and that might be yeah tourism companies or um, governments yeah who are who want sort of like legislation um, put in place so yeah, we've we've evolved into doing a real wide range of, of projects, which um, I I really really like. I love the diversity of it. And you use the your word welfare a lot. With your experience, what does good welfare look like to you? Mm, great question. And I think even it's it's really hard to answer. And this is only going to be my my answer. So probably first say what I'm defining as welfare but it would be the balance between positive and negative effective states. So um, if you've looked into welfare a little bit, you can you can define it slightly different ways. But the one that we use is this feelings-based definition where it's really all about how the animal's perceiving its environment um, and its state of being. So health problems and stuff will affect it only when they make it feel good or feel bad. Um, so in terms of good welfare, if you move on from that definition, good welfare we're kind of saying is when they have more positive experiences, affective states or emotional states, some people call them, than negative emotional states in a certain time frame. Again, that last bit makes it really difficult. It's like how how long is the time frame? You know, 
you obviously shouldn't measure it a day because all of us can have bad days sometimes but then is a week enough maybe not is a month enough maybe but then you also have you know with us too you can have these sort of transitional you might measure over a month and then especially with animals and their social groups that might change or uh, you know completely within the next month so um yeah it's it's more positive than negative effective states over a certain period of time would be good welfare do you ever struggle i guess with like uh tr- i'm trying to word this correctly but trying to not let being anthropomorphic come into it and i guess like obviously with you you've got so much history with science and you know data but do have you ever struggled in the past I guess with being too anthropomorphic or letting that you know control any aspects of your research or your assessments yeah definitely I think it's it's probably hard not to when you're talking about animal emotions you know the only reference point we have is our own emotions and and our own welfare and well-being it's the same thing as us being happy as their welfare so um yeah I think it's it does come in I probably say the most where it mostly comes in is when 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 I talk about it probably and I'm can always do better to to make my language more objective. But I think um yeah, the great thing about the advances in the field recently is that there are some really objective ways of measuring when you're actually taking the data, there's objective ways of, of measuring what the animals are doing, their cognitive decisions, their health, their, you know, all these other things. Um and then it's up to us as humans to interpret that and that's where it gets sometimes a little fuzzy. But yeah. I should we should really just stick on stick with the objective data collection which is is has come on so far since a few I guess yeah 10 years ago yeah even recently um Tess and I actually attended a conference back in May and one of the keynote speakers was Rick Hester and he did a phenomenal presentation on using data and science and how we use that to be able to uh, completely analyzed like how often the penguins were swimming I think they did at one of their facilities and it was just like it gave gave me such a different like understanding of it rather than our opinions so that was really interesting mm. yeah yeah now I guess with the word welfare I'm not sure if you agree but I think sometimes it can have a bit of a negative association with it and from your experience do you think it's changing to a slightly more positive outlook yeah I don't know that's an interesting one I'm not sure I guess I'm not sure I would say but maybe I'm too close to it to say that it's got an association with negative but I can imagine if you're working at a at a facility and or a zoo and and all you hear is maybe animal rights people shouting welfare stuff at you maybe it would be negatively associated but yeah I hope it's becoming uh, more of a positive thing or at least maybe even least a neutral thing because as we're talking about it might be that balance between positive ne- positive effective states and negative effective states so yeah, it might be good welfare or bad, bad welfare. It can be can be either side of the coin. Um, but I hope, yeah, I, if if that is, I guess, where the negative association comes from, the animal rights movement, I hope that has become a little bit more clear for people in recent years. And I think it has, where it's not that one's better than the other, but at least that they're now properly understood as two different fields, two like really important fields, but they are quite separate. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe 10... 15 years ago they were getting a bit confused you know that people thought that anyone who was fighting for animal rights also was fighting for animal welfare but you can you can have yeah obviously different opinions on the rights but still be fighting for the welfare yeah absolutely and there can be you know extremists (laughs) in that for sure Mm. well um in talking about that have you ever had any hesitancy from your staff when being assigned to a new facility to assess their welfare um, do you mean the staff at the facility or the team of us as assessors? 
sorry, yeah, a team of you guys as a as assessors. Yeah. Um, we have not hesitancy, but we've definitely encountered uh definitely resistance. Most times when that happens is when um, for example, like we're asked to do a government inspection and it's not the facility themselves that are asking us, it's like the government that are, that are putting this inspection upon them. And that it's really, uh, yeah, it's really sad, like, sad or a shame. It makes it difficult to do our job because a lot of it is collecting data that the keepers or the trainers themselves, you know, know and know how to help us collect and can can enhance it. So invariably, whenever that happens, when there is resistance, we'll, we'll get probably poorer quality data because it's just harder to, to get the real story. And of course, then with the recommendations and results, you then feel that they might not be going as far as you want them to because, yeah, there's resistance to the ideas. Um, but I have to say that's lucky. Well, we've only done a few projects like that on the whole where, where it's the zoo or um, yeah, facility themselves asking us to come in. They're, they're really open to, to ideas. So it's not too common. That's so good. That's, that's great good. to see that. Yeah, like that positivity um, when you mm. guys are a part of that. That's awesome. Now, a couple of episodes ago, I think I actually, my recommendation before the, we got into our actual chat was this recent study that I'd seen all over social media. And it is a study that you have co-authored, which shows the improvements in life expectancy in four marine animal species in human care, which is incredible. For anyone who mm. didn't see that, would you mind chatting a little bit more about the study, the findings and what species you were looking at? Yeah. So this was a study, um, yeah, using the Species Through 60 ZIMS data, um, and they have looked at it over, I think, the past 200 years and found that, I think it was a threefold over all of the species as an average, and it was polar bears, uh, California sea lions, dolphins, um, and I think harbor seals was the last one. We'll have to check that. <laughs> um, I think and that's the average, right, yeah. yeah, no, you probably looked at it more recently <laughs> than me um and the average improvements yeah was um three times more than, than the wild that the, these animals were living three times longer than than their wild counterparts and yeah this is it's a really needed study using a load of data and it's it's much needed because I think as you've probably read as well there's been a few studies before this which you can you, you can get into like like fights basically about how to interpret longevity and lifespan data you can you can analyze it in loads of different ways and it was starting to get a little bit where I think it became a sort of proxy for again and a sort of animal rights debate where people different groups from different you know were, were analyzing this data and saying no look definitely it's it's longer uh, in captivity and another group was saying no it's definitely not because I've looked at the data this way Anyway, I'm sure people will still say that it's not concluded, but I think the fact that they've looked at loads of different species, so much data, um, and I think, again, to me, the findings just make sense. Like, if we think about over the past 200 years and all the improvements that have been made in, in zoos and aquariums, and also, as we know, the threat that the, the wild species are facing, it doesn't surprise me at all that that, that lifespan has increased that much. Um, I think, and I think... The other point to say is that, and they we, we say this in the paper as well, is that um, it doesn't necessarily mean welfare has improved. I, I tend to think it has, but, you know, for, for those who want to argue that welfare angle as well, this is just one aspect, lifespan, and it usually is a good indicator, but it's not always, um, you know, a longer life doesn't necessarily mean a better life. So there's still more work to be done to see whether really, you know, how welfare has improved and just because 
you know, just because we're saying longevity has doesn't mean um, we can sort of finish the, the investigation there. So, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I'm really proud to be part of it. Yeah, it's it's so amazing to be able to have that sort of science behind that, you know, especially I think less now than what was asked in the past, but, you know, people questioning animals in human care and, you know, now we're looking at being able to revert people to solid science, which is amazing to be able to showcase that. Do you know in particular why those four species were chosen or is it just that they had the most data on them or? I, I'm afraid I don't. Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, I can we can ask the 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 lead author Morgan, but um I don't know exactly why. I'm I'm assuming it probably would be because they've got the most data. I think those species yeah. have probably been kept kept the longest. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to think of the potential to do so many different terrestrial species, and um yeah, the potential of that study with so many different taxa. That's a really cool thought. That's for sure. Mm, and also that you know in the end that's all kind of I love that because it's sort of zoo generated data it's it's like species 360 it's you know people who are working on the ground putting in that and yes maybe it's easy just to put in the the age of the animal but next it's going to be looking at all the other things that people are putting in every day you know how much they've eaten you know all these other parameters so yeah the power of data and everyone using like one one system together is massive isn't it yeah. Um, and as Daisy mentioned before, when we listened to this speech about um, data collection, a lot of people, well, obviously not yourself, a lot of people kind of groan at the thought of data collection, like, oh, no, that, that's that's not ideal. But when you see it and you see it there, it gives you so much information. So um, yeah, it's a cool thought. Definitely. And uh, yeah, like probably like I'm sure the guy was saying in the presentation, it's it doesn't have to be like doing a project or a PhD or a master's like data collection can be, you know, going out with an iPad and, and just clicking a few times, you know, it's, it can be, it sounds corny, but it can, it can be really fun. Like, like just watching the animal and, and noting down what it's doing. So yeah, I mean, I am biased, but I think hopefully again with technology, it's making it funner and more easy. Yeah. Even yes, the last absolutely. last month, month or so, our facility, we've started, doing ethergrams um, via Zoom Monitor. And even in that sort of mm. short time, it's been amazing for us as staff to learn and see what we're seeing as well. So it'd be nice. great in a few months to be able to understand that data a little bit more too. Nice. Now, I'd love for you to share one of your favourite assessments um, you've done. And is there a particular one that stood out for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think I mentioned a couple. So one of them it's sort of like a, a series of assessments, but I've really enjoyed working with the Beluga Whale Sanctuary. So they are a project that has moved two belugas from an aquarium in China to Iceland. Um, and they've been, at the moment, the, the plan is to put them out in a netted kind of bay area. And at the moment, they're still inside in an indoor pool and they're going to be moved out sort of in incremental steps for a long, longer time. And I don't know, for some of you or some of your listeners who might have seen the news on this, it's not been a you know easy project at all. It's been up and down. It's not, it's also there's lots of politics behind it, you know, in terms of what should we do with belugas and cetaceans in captivity. But I've really enjoyed working with the team. They and this is a cool distinction between welfare and then everything else, you know, in terms of welfare, so we've been contracted to do welfare assessments at regular points throughout their journey. So we're China. Um, at the beginning and then since they've been in Iceland we've been going back when they've been inside when they've been outside and just tracking their journey so that's probably I guess why um, 
I like it so much is that sometimes as a consultant you get to only come in do the do the assessment and then you leave and you don't have like an ongoing relationship but with these guys we've now worked with them for yeah nearly six years since the beginning so um it's really nice to see the journey of the animals and also I think to be like we were talking about before be a little bit of that objective evidence-based voice in a bit of a crazy debate project you know lots of different things going on lots of opinions and at least we can say well we're doing these welfare assessments we're seeing how they go it's not it's not going to be easy it's not going to be linear probably not going to be a linear you know increase but at least at least we're trying we're doing it as best we can and and seeing how it goes and then the other projects I'd definitely like to mention just because you guys are Australian based is SeaWorld in Australia because they've been also a long-term client and um I've really, really enjoyed working with them because, again, I mean, it's always about the people that they're so open and, like you said, positive and and willing to try things and collect data. And I think probably that's I think that's where that conference was that you were mentioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They talk talk about data collection. Like they've since I started working with them three or four years ago, they've started this Zoom monitor and behavioral data collection program, and they're smashing it. Like they take such good quality data every day on the dolphins and now that's spreading to the different animals in the park so um yeah definitely really enjoyed working with them and I guess when you have a facility like that taking that kind of data it makes our job so much easier because we have also we take our own data but we can then also compare it and look look back at what's been what's been going on before so it's really helpful it's really cool that you brought up um SeaWorld because during the conference Tess and I we actually did like a sort of an enrichment afternoon I guess with the dolphin team and they took mm. through a lot of the different categories of enrichment how their tracking went through the whole zoo monitor stuff so yeah that was really mm. interesting and such a cool nice. facility and such a good group of people that work there yeah yeah agreed now we do have some questions from our listeners so yeah. question number one which actually I'm really interested to hear your response was how do you go about talking and working with facilities that do have poor welfare mm. oh yeah really good question I think yeah it's a really good question I think um I probably you end up having to sort of prioritize or pick your battles a little bit um in terms of the results so yeah if you've got an assessment and the results show a lot of problems you can't always come in and say all of this is wrong change it you know because that also won't won't happen you know practically so definitely picking your battles um often I find with those kind of facilities and again it's not it's not the the team on the ground that are you know providing poor welfare it's usually that they are kind of hamstrung by the the funding that or resources they've got and they can't they can't provide good welfare so that's that is really difficult because probably is you know we can't really we can't we can't tell them or they can't influence how much money they're going to get really so um we have to find small feasible things for them to do within their current budget constraints to be able to improve welfare um, and sometimes it is a question about sort of education, you know, and, and letting them know different perspectives on, on things. And and again, if like, like with a sort of worse funded or poorly funded facility, they might have had more kind of animal rights or, or um, attacks on them over the years, which means that they're a bit more defensive in terms of welfare, which means that's usually something to break down is like, okay, let's start talking about welfare as what it is as opposed to feeding you know they often then tell me the lines that they tell the public which is everything's fine nothing's wrong blah blah (laughs) um so it's a bit about breaking down those barriers and to be honest like 
it doesn't always work like I said in those government inspection ones you know when I've only got we've only got a week there and you know we try as hard as we can to, to like build those relationships with the with the staff but it doesn't always and I understand why you know like it's just someone else attacking them for something they can't control because they don't have enough money to provide care for their animals which which must be like heartbreaking on their side you know for sh- of course so it's, it is really difficult and um, so I think the answer is providing trying to find those practical um you know easy ways for them to improve welfare um so that they feel a bit more empowered in the situation yeah I can imagine that would be pretty difficult to manage like you'd have to tread lightly like you said so um that they understand that you're coming from a a way of like suggesting giving suggestions but also yeah like you said often those keepers aren't the ones with the um big decisions or have the finances yeah. like they're probably well aware of these problems yeah but it comes yeah. from the top yeah yeah and that to be fair that often happens not even in just the worst places is where <laughs> like you know the directors of a zoo or whatever will will ask us to come in and we have you know we have our results and findings and recommendations give them back to them and the keepers are like we've been saying this for years and then finally yeah, the, yeah and and it it's some it's sad but it sometimes just takes an external person to say it and then the directors like do actually listen and make a make a change so I can totally see why it's really frustrating (laughs) I guess you're always in like a fairly good area if the team or the director's management have decided to bring you in that's always a really positive that they're they're now open to change which is a great start yeah yeah definitely um, now, our final question was, is there a particular animal you'd love to work with in the future, whether that be in the wild or a zoological setting? Mm. Um, God, I haven't thought about it. <laughs> I'd say one, one that we did recently, which I hadn't expected to work with, but I loved was, yeah, a really like sort of rare species in zoos, I guess they're called dole, they're Asian wild dogs. And we assessed their welfare at a zoo in in Sweden, um, and it that that kind of a project just showed that you can really apply a welfare assessment even if there's little research on that animal. You can still do you know have a very basic assessment. You can use comparable research. Um, so that kind of opened up actually my thinking of yeah we really can do these these assessments to to any kind of species. Um, but I would probably say. I don't know a specific species, but we're about to do a big project on on zoo birds. So I'd say a bird species. I think the next for a for assessment would be cool. That's awesome. Yeah, birds, birds rule. <laughs> yeah, Tess will be happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bird like me. Yeah. Tess is definitely a bird person. <laughs> nice. Well, Isabella, I feel like we could sit here all day long and chat to you about everything you've done in your career because it's so inspirational and it's really great to have an insight into a slightly different route that you're able to take while still playing a massive role in zoological facilities and aquariums around the world as well as wild populations of animals it's amazing so thank you so much for spending the time we are super grateful no thank you for having me really enjoyed it yeah this this has been so interesting thank you so much well days i say this every week that was a great chat i really enjoyed it it was very engaging Uh, and I'm looking forward to another episode next week. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed that one too. Now, just quickly before we head off, Tess and I would love to ask if you don't mind jumping onto wherever you listen to your podcast, clicking follow. It just helps us get our podcast out to more like-minded souls around the world. Thank you guys again. I hope you enjoy, and we'll be seeing you next week. Bye.